Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Now, like many of you, I had watched all of the Lord of the Rings uh, movies as a kid. In fact, the first movie I'd ever watched in the cinemas was The Return of the King. Just to begin with, I think the book in itself is a literary masterpiece. But in terms of keeping myself engaged completely throughout the entire process, I noticed myself zoning out in many areas, especially that related to poems and songs, because there are a lot of those in this particular book. But I'm not here to talk about what I liked or what I disliked uh, from a plotline point of view, because, I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien was a master when it came to inventing worlds and languages and beings. In fact, I think it was him who popularized and invented orcs that have kind of come up in so many other mythologies and fantasies that we've seen since. So, I'm just going to get into it. And I want to read a quote that C.S. Lewis, which was one of the friends of J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote books like the Narnia series, which turned into horrible movies, but were amazing books. This is what he had to say about Lord of the Rings. No imaginary world has been projected, which is at once multifarious and so true to its own inner laws, none so seemingly objective, so disinfected from the author's merely individual psychology, none so relevant to the actual human situation, yet free from allegory. I think that's a really good place to start because what Tolkien did really well is he practiced what he preached when it comes to his writing. He hated allegory. The attempt to try to put lessons and make parallels between the story that you're reading and something that might actually be happening right now or, or is reflective of something else or an inner type of moral that you're trying to come across. He went as far in his Lord of the Rings books to say in the introduction, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations. And always have done so, since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers. To be honest, I tried to look for any form of allegory in his book, but I couldn't really find any. And I think it was true to his word. The story of Frodo, of the ring, of the journey towards Mordor, the company and all the adventures that they go on is pretty reflective of almost like a good versus evil, not almost like a pretty much a good versus evil uh, framework that has been picked up in so many stories. But it's not something that he's trying to make parallels in terms of his per own personal experiences. He He does say this, and I think he was, he may have been influenced from his own experiences when it comes to understanding war. He says this, One has indeed personally to come under the shadow of war, to feel fully in oppression. But as the years go by, it seems now, often forgotten, that to be caught in youth by 1914 was no less hideous an experience than to be involved in 1939. And the following years, by 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. I mean, I hear this all the time when it comes to personal experiences when I'm counseling my clients, that if you haven't been through it, you don't know what it's like. And in a way, they're, they're right. They're 100% right when it comes to really sitting in their shoes. And that's where empathy uh, comes in handy. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that a person cannot 
help if you haven't had that lived experience. Sure, you may understand the person's experience in a deeper way if you've lived it yourself. But just like a cardiologist doesn't need to have had a heart attack to be able to diagnose a heart attack in yourself and help you through that. So, a person doesn't necessarily need to have gone through a person's another person's experience to be able to be with them in that experience. But that's a bit of a preamble when it comes to the Lord of the Rings. I want to start by talking about Frodo because Frodo is a hobbit. A hobbit keeps to himself. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the outside world. But when he's called upon, he's able to show so much more than what was initially expected of him. We see this with Bilbo's experiences with Smaug the dragon in The Hobbit and then ongoing with Frodo's experiences. So, oftentimes we have our own self-doubt and our own level of comfort that we don't want to put ourselves beyond our level of tolerance. And these books are such an amazing starting point to really test that theory. A hobbit is a hobbit, he likes to stay in his hole and eat good food, never get into any trouble, gossip about other people or the going-ons in the Shire and the rest of that. They don't want to put their foot out. And yet, these hobbits do. That Frodo starts to inherit, well, he inherits the ring, essentially, and then he meets Gandalf for, for dinner and Gandalf is like, hey, you've got to keep the ring hidden. But you've also got to have the burden of carrying that ring. Gandalf is telling him all about the, the evil that is surrounding the ring from its forging by Sauron and the wars that have been fought around it and how people who just take on the ring mysteriously just get sucked into its power, almost like an addiction where you crave it, you want it, and you don't want to give it away. And if someone wants to take it away from you, you, you're ready to fight tooth and nail for it and kill somebody else if they do take away what's so precious to you. Now, Frodo says this. He says, I wish it need not happen in my time. Gandalf responds and he says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. I mean, this is so important because it, it's such a universal principle. We don't choose the times that we are born in. And yet we do choose what we can do with those times. Often people who have what psychologists call an external locus of control, they see things as happening to them rather than them having the ability to act within their own internal locus of control and work towards a way of moving forward. And when a trauma happens, when a stress hits, one of the best things that I advise my own clients is to find something that you can control. Even if it's at the tiniest little thing that you have, like waking up in the morning or choosing when to wake up, choosing what to eat in the morning, choosing when to go for a walk, choosing what your routine looks like in the morning, these sorts of things establish a level of control and it can actually work towards your next step. And Frodo's, Frodo realizes things are out of his control, but he takes on that sense of, I want to, to do something. Frodo wants to make sure that his life counts for something, even though he wished it hadn't happened in his time. And so, he chooses to make that change and make it, make a sense of, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to actually step up and do the things that I fear the most. 
as many have said, you've got to pursue that which scares you the most to be able to really overcome that. And this is as true for therapy as anything else. When you're struggling with something, hiding from it, hiding under a bridge in your home, not going out and just hoping it goes away is not a solution. And we'll get to this as we go. Uh, in the same conversation that Frodo has with Gandalf, Gandalf gives a bit of a backstory on Schmeagol, who becomes Gollum. Uh, discussing Schmeagol, Gandalf says, he ceased to look up at the hilltops or the leaves all the trees, all the flowers opening in the air. His head and his eyes were downward. Now, Gollum starts to, or Schmeagol rather, starts to lose himself. And instead of facing up with seeing the world of possibility, he starts to look downwards. And when you're looking downwards, I mean, this is important to understand from a psychological bent because posture necessitates feeling. What I mean by that is if you're constantly looking down with a slouch in your stance, if you're constantly on the downward spiral, you're more likely to feel less empowered, less confident and have higher levels of stress. In Schmeagel's case, he starts to experience a fixedness in his own mindset, a sort of malice that comes up and a, and a hatred towards anything that would separate him from his own addiction. I often see people in my clinical practice where they say that their drug of choice is their best friend. That's a tricky thing to work with because it's a matter of saying goodbye to your best friend and separating and going through that grief process. And some people go through it well, other people find it very difficult. Gandalf goes on to say, he wandered in loneliness, weeping a little for the hardness of the world. All right, so, so here we've already looked at the external locus of control, blaming others. And so many people blame others for the things that happen to them. And rightly so, in some cases, some bad things happen. But if we take a stance that everything's happening to me and it's everyone else's fault, that puts us in a position where we are incredibly vulnerable and incredibly antagonistic about the idea of making changes because you want everyone else to change rather than making those changes yourself. And if you're not going to make those changes yourself, you might as well just crawl into your own hole and not come out until you're ready to, to take that stance, that step forward. It's a hard, hard step to take. Gandalf goes on to say that there was a little corner of his mind that was still his own and light came through it as though a chink in the dark light out of the past. I loved this one because this light out of the past reminds me of when we're so in the pith of despair, we can always look at something that may have happened that was positive, that, that was going right in the past. And we can start to see, well, what are we doing now that's relatively different to what was happening back when things were going good? And it's hard because we, we as people have what's called a negativity bias as well as a confirmation bias. A negativity bias is our brain is structured in such a way that we want to look at the negative elements because it prepares us to see what is around the corner. And that is as much a stress response as anything else. But also a confirmation bias is we tend to be really open to things that confirm our own beliefs. And this can happen in all sorts of the, the sphere where it comes down to 
you know, political persuasions or psychological thoughts or traumatic uh, concepts that we have or the types of schemas that we develop, these concepts of the world. If we are only looking at the, the darkness, then the light is harder to shine through. I remember one of my clients who said, even the smallest flame overpowers the darkest room. With Schmeagel, this is what happened. There was a little tiny part of his mind that reminded him of the past, a more beautiful, a more upwards gazing past. But then, as Gandalf says, of course, that would only make the evil part of him angrier in the end, unless it could be conquered, unless it could be cured. Gandalf sighed. Alas, there is little hope of that for him. Yet not no hope. We're constantly at battle within ourselves. We have one part of us that believes one thing, another part of us that believes something else, or one part that wants one thing, another part that wants something else. It's really important to understand which part is at play. And for Schmeagel, it was the evil that was at play stronger than the good. But ask yourself, what is it that I'm struggling with? Because it's about balancing these two parts, but acknowledging them first. It's very easy, as Schmeagel does, to abandon responsibility and blame other people when evil happens to us. And I use evil very, very purposely there, because evil is something that misses the mark. I think that's a really important thing to consider. Because when we're going through the toughest of the tough, what I notice and what I see in my own clinical practice is meaning making during the darkest times of suffering is the thing that sets apart a person from post-traumatic growth in comparison to post-traumatic stress. If you're able to make meaning out of the suffering that you're going through, you're less likely to experience that despondent overwhelm of the stress that's coming at you. Now, hearing Gollum's story, Frodo gets really annoyed. And what he says is he wishes death upon Gollum. Gandalf is a bit shrewd in his response. And he says this, many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? And do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment for even the wise cannot see your lens. This is such a pivotal response because in the end, we are very quick again to try to make sense of what other people are doing rather than what we in our own mind and body and spirit have in control. If we're able to determine what it is that is within our control and what lies within our responsibility, then we're less likely to condemn other people. We immaturely condemn others when we feel hard done by. And that's important because it's a hard kick to the ego to admit that we've done something wrong. But what Gandalf does in this sense is, well, he says, look at yourself, man. Hold up a mirror and know that you're not as wise as you think you are. And even if you were, even the wise don't see all ends. And there's a bit of a hook there because he still has some hope that the story of Schmeagel continues because all ends implies that there's something else that's part of the plan. Often when people are suicidal, I tell them that you must remember that if you kill yourself, you are killing the current version of who you are right now, but you are also killing 
every single potential person you could be. We can all look back at our own lives and figure out ways that we have been in the pith of despair and then we rose out of there. And if we ended it all back then, we wouldn't be able to be sitting here and live the way that you're living now, which presumably could be a lot better. And if you're in the pit of despair right now, this serves as a reminder that things can get better and they often do get better. I'm going to fast forward the narrative to when Frodo actually sets off with Sam and they meet an elf called Gildor in the forest. Now, Gildor is a really interesting one because he has a lot of really, really good sayings. One of the sayings that jumped out at me was this. The wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. There's a really interesting distinction between safety and adventure here. Sure enough, if you stay in at home, you're relatively safe. You don't have to put your toes into something that might cause you a tiny bit of harm or even a lot of harm. You could ask yourself, what is worth doing even if it causes stress, harm? What's worth doing even if you fail? And is the alternative worse? In this real simple quote, you can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence the world out. There's going to be a time where trauma, stress will come knocking. And sure, it's great to fence yourself in at times and create some areas of safety. But you've got to ask yourself, what am I willing to do? Frodo and Sam ask for Gildor's advice on what they need to do moving forward. And Gildo responds, Elves seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is a dangerous gift, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. I think this really speaks to any type of communication between people. In the end, the advice giver needs to assess what it is that they are willing to to take responsibility of because what if the person that you're giving advice to practices what it is that you tell them and it completely tears up in their face you're thinking of it from your point of view and you think that what your experience is what may work for you up until that point will work specifically for someone else but we are not all cookie cutter composites when it comes down to our to the way that we handle stress The advice giver doesn't have to live with the consequences of their advice. Be careful about when you're giving advice. It's an important one. Fast forward again to when Frodo, Sam and others are being chased by the dark horseman. And they're trying to make it to the bridge to cross into an area called Bree. They see something in the distance, in the fog. The figure's coming closer and closer. And they realize that it's actually their friend, Mary. And when they see Mary, this is what happens. As he came out of the mist and their fears subsided, he seemed suddenly to diminish to ordinary hobbit size. I think this is a really cool one because we have an expectation of what the darkness entails and what the darkness holds. And often it holds monsters. As we've seen in this example, fear is an amplifier. And when it comes to the things that we see, the things that we fear the most, we try to extrapolate what we think we understand about what that stressor or that threat is. It becomes even more dangerous than anything else. 
until you're faced with something that's not as dangerous as you thought it was going to be, as we've seen here with Mary. As he came out of the mist and their fears subsided, he seemed suddenly to diminish to ordinary hobbit size. Story goes on, and they make it through the old forest, and they meet a guy who didn't actually make it into the movie, but his name is Tom Bombadil. And Tom Bombadil seems to have been there forever, and he is pretty happy-go-lucky, sings songs, and doesn't take anything seriously. When Frodo talks to him about the ring, Tom Bombadil is just brushing it off and just doesn't seem to take it as seriously as even Gandalf took it. This is what the book says. He was perhaps a trifle annoyed with Tom for seeming to make so light of what even Gandalf thought so perilously important. Probably one of the reasons why Tom didn't take much stock into the perils of the ring was he's seen a lot. He's been around forever, almost. And he was able to see things within their proper context. And it just reminds me of people who are elderly and are going through the stresses that might be happening today. And when they're asked, what what do they think about it? They can quite shrug it off and say, hey, well, I've lived through this and this and this, and this is just another thing. But when we're in it and we're young and we haven't experienced this before, it's something that makes us really, really question it. But I don't want to downgrade Tom Bombadil because Bombadil is, is not weak. He is not naive. He doesn't put as much stock into what other people fear. But he is more carefree rather than careless. And there's a big difference between being carefree and careless. He knows who he is. He's powerful. He's courageous. He steps in and he's able to overcome the darkness He's able to tackle threats, as we see in the book as well. But he's also not going to take things too seriously if they don't need to be taken seriously. This is where we have to ask ourselves, what's our attitude when we're coming across something that is really difficult for other people? Are we able to demonstrate courage, but are we also able to see what the stress is and analyze it in its own place? That's an important thing to consider. The story progresses, and they get cornered at night by the Nazgul. His terror was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. Something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings as he longed to yield. I see this all the time when a person is under the most difficult of stress, and they tend to give in to what is worse for them. The temptation to yield is often the strongest, especially when it comes to addiction. A person feels stressed, a person feels emotional, a person feels uncomfortable. Addiction, the drug, the substance of of choice is the thing that they go back to. And this is really common for people who have had traumatic stress or, or people who have had abandonment issues. Someone once said that you find a measure of a man when he's pushed beyond his limits. You find out what that person really stands for. It's fair enough when things are going all good and you don't really do and you don't have to prove yourself. You don't really have to stand up for what you believe in. Then it's easy to say, I'll do this and I'll do that. But many people will find out or may have already found out how they will truly act in a situation where they're pressed. 
in a situation where push comes to shove and they have to make a choice whether they value something or not. If you stand up, it's not always going to be a good outcome. But the question comes up again, what's worth doing even if you fail or even if it has some of the worst consequences that you could ever imagine? So Frodo wakes up in Rivendell. He's safe. He's escaped the Nazgul, the Black Riders that are after him. And he, in a way, has resisted the clutch of the temptation of the ring fully. Though he does succumb to that temptation at that time. When he wakes up, he's greeted by Gandalf. And so ensues some of the most amazing conversations in the Lord of the Rings books. Gandalf's a wise fellow, which emulates uh, Tolkien as a wise fellow. An Oxford Don had a group called the Inklings, where C.S. Lewis was another partaker of that group, where many authors of the time would trade ideas and they would touch base with what they were writing at the time. So back to Gandalf. He looks at Frodo. You can see that he's on the mend, and this is his advice. You are not supposed to talk or worry about anything today, by Elrond's orders. Frodo responds, But talking will stop me thinking and wondering, which are quite as tiring. The reason this one stood out for me is because sometimes we think some of the best things that we can do is to be quiet about something in particular. But what we notice is when we do that, is that it seems to bubble up more to the surface. And from a psychological point of view, when things do bubble up and they turn into rumination and that creates anxiety and stress, and then it develops a sort of schema, a way of looking at the world, that this is the way things are. Frodo, on the other hand, combats that idea and he says, nah, I want to get it out of my head and I want to release myself from that stress. Some of the ways people do this are through journaling, are through debriefing, are through therapy in so many different ways. And he's right. I mean, even Gandalf gets it wrong at times, as you he would be the first to admit. The next quote is a good example of this. Gandalf says, There are many powers in the world for good and for evil. Some are greater than I am. Against some, I have not yet been measured. But my time is coming. The ability to own what you're good at, what you're not so good at, and what you just don't know, is the epitome of self-esteem. When I talk with my clients, I think about neutral, high, and low self-esteem. When you're neutral, you don't have an inflated or a deflated view of who you are. You're just open to opportunities of understanding yourself in the context of other people. You know that other people are better than you at stuff, and that others are, are worse off, and you're better than others. We need to stay away from low and high self-esteem. And this might sound counterintuitive, but this is something that the research bears out. What we know is that a high ego, although it can help in the short term to boost your own sense of self, is degenerative in the long term. You're not as important as you think you are in a wider sense of you standing out amongst the world. But you're also not less important than you think you are. And so I would say, I would I would always recommend people aim for a little bit higher than neutral. That way you're constantly looking to better yourself and to be 1% better every single day. 
from a neuroplastic point of view, which is the sense that brains learn and adapt to change over time. And the more you repeat something, the more it becomes ingrained in the way that your brain assesses and responds to certain situations, but is an outcome of constant practice and persistence and, dare I say it, discipline. And the best way to move towards discipline is through building your own self-awareness. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. The house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house. Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best. Or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear and sadness. Why would you leave? Well, Bilbo goes on and addresses why people do leave that safe nest. He looks at Frodo and he says, Don't adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone always has to carry on the story. As kids, we aim to be safe. We're safe in our mother's wombs. We are safe when we have everything provided for us. But then as we get older... And if we've been reared pretty well, we leave the nest and we try to work towards our own way in the world. This is especially important when it comes to adolescence from 12 to 24 years of age, where social engagement, where creative exploration, novelty, things like emotions and all these sorts of things come together to help a child become their own. And this is really important when it comes to taking risks. It's much more comfortable to sit down and not do anything, as hobbits do very well. And by not do anything, I could mean just having a pie, enjoying a drink, being able to be with friends and eat some pretty good food. And why wouldn't you want that? Everyone wants that at some point in time. But then creeps in a boredom, a sense of not being able to maximize who you are and who you can be. Friedrich Nietzsche says that we should become who we are. And for a German philosopher who died in the 1900s, who valued self-expression, living up to your own sense of self and who you are as a person and establishing that level of confidence and power and value over your own utility as a human being, this is a very important way of thinking. Become who you are. What does that mean? Or who you are is a constant evolving process. And without that level of push and pull, you're never going to achieve anything. Frodo is definitely going to see that as the story progresses. We're going to shift over now to Gandalf relaying his own story about meeting Saruman. And Saruman trying to take him over to the dark side of white. Which is really interesting because Saruman is the highest in his order. In his confrontation with Gandalf, and Gandalf says that he wants the white to shine through. Saruman says to him, white serves as a beginning. White cloth may be dyed, the white page can be overwritten, and the white light can be broken. In which case it is no longer white, says Gandalf. And he who breaks the thing to find out what it has left, has left the path of wisdom. Here's another nugget from from Gandalf. It's really interesting because one of the things that I've noticed in my therapy with, with clients that I see is some are afraid to put paint on their canvas. They have that white, that blank canvas. Saruman is not, but in that, in that sense, it's a very negative connotation. 
But at the same time, we have Gandalf the Grey, who is aiming to become that next level up. And White is held as that true standard. Saruman, already achieving that pinnacle, that pinnacle of self-development, goes on and takes that next step towards evil. And that's the tricky thing. When we experience all that the world has to offer, it's a tough gig to be contented with that. And we often compromise on our morals. Question is, what are we willing to stand for? And how do we move forward with that? Sounds a bit airy-fairy, but you need to know what you stand for to be able to move forward. They call a council, Elrond's council, and they try to find a way to move this forward. So far, so far, Frodo doesn't know that it's his responsibility to go to Mordor. And nor has he chosen that, nor has anybody else told him he needs to do that. But the decision is yet to come. They're having to figure out what to do with the ring. Elrond stands up and he says, If any of the wise should with this ring overthrow the Lord of Mordor, using his own arts, he would then set himself on Sauron's throne, and yet another Dark Lord would appear. And that is another reason why the ring should be destroyed. As long as it is in the world, it will be a danger even to the wise. For nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. I fear to take the ring, to hide it. I will not take the ring, to yield it. With great power comes great responsibility. Sometimes people think that they can handle and wield something that is degenerative, something that they've never been able to do so before. I see this a lot in people who have an addiction or who have something that they're trying to give up that is getting in the way of their life. And say, well, I I just want to control it. I just want to move it down. I just want to get a better sense of it. And some people can do that, but not for long. For in the end, there is an overcoming of a desire. Oftentimes, when we continue to go back to the thing that devastates us the most. We see this in literature, as we've seen with The Lord of the Rings, but we see this in our own lives as well. When we try to regulate the things that are causing us the most harm when when we are called to do something greater. And that's the work of therapists, for example. We try to work with simple steps to reduce and to increase a level of control over a particular situation with the end result of overcoming that particular ailment, so to speak. But there's no quick way about doing that. And as we see with Frodo's journey towards Mordor, It's rife with deadly risks and opportunities, but you've got to pave your path in a way where you're mapping out where you need to go. And that goes with anything we want to change in our lives. We need to have a clear plan perspective and know what we can and cannot control. As the serenity prayer goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. The council continues, with Aaron saying, Despair is only for those who seek the end beyond all doubt. We do not. It is wisdom to recognize necessity when all other courses have been weighed, though as folly it may appear to those who cling to false hope. Neither strength nor wisdom will carry us. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Elrond 
starts to take the pedestal alongside Gandalf in his witty wise words. And I think this is really important because when you consider looking around in history, it is those who are the most betrodden that tend to make the largest change. Governments appear to be some of the most degenerative institutions in the form of causing physical, emotional and deathly pain. Sauron can be looked at as one of the one one of the predominant archetypes of evil when we consider on the line of Satan, for example, the Satan of Hebrew law and religion. This is really important to consider because when we see the world turning, and I want to read that again. Such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, or the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Small hands do them because they must, or the hands of the great are elsewhere. This is something that reminds me of many of the uprisings, both recent and historical, where it is often the people who are hurt the most that set their foot forward regardless of the consequences. Elrond is quick to say that false hope is not a thing that we should cling on to. It's a realism that wins at the end. And the best war is that which is fought out of necessity, rather than out of greed and folly and power and control. And even a soccer match of which a war was started in the past, which is just blows my mind. There are so many different reasons why wars start. The ones that are fought out of necessity are the ones that are just. Now, this can be both considered an internal war as well as an external war. We all know that when we have different parts of ourselves that are drawn towards one thing but drawn away from something else, we may feel one way about one particular thing that we're trying to change and at the same time feel the opposite way. This internal battle that we find ourselves in is no more distant than what we see with Frodo, with Elrond, with Gandalf, with the company, with all those who are, for example, protesting or standing up for something today. It's often the ones that have been hurt the most to emphasize that point, that work towards a level best. Elrond goes on to say, It is true that if these hobbits understood the danger, they would not dare to go. But they would still wish to go. Or wish that they dared. They would still wish to go or wish that they dared. Tolkien does it again when he considers the type of inspired action it takes. That it's not a matter of feeling like you want to do something. I often experience times with clients of mine where they know what they need to do. But they don't feel like doing it. And so there's a mismatch between the head and the heart. And my response to that mindset is if you're waiting for motivation to come before you take action, you're going to be waiting a hell of a long time. It's important to take that action even if you feel like you don't want to do it. And this is important because it's about acting in accordance to your values rather than acting in accordance to your feelings. Feelings come and they go. They sway like a tree in the wind. And it's really difficult because when you're Resting on that, as we do in often today's culture, we rest on the clickbait sense of what we want to get out of our life that is a click away and these here and now experiences. It's not the way that builds us as we move forward. Frodo doesn't want to go to Mordor, but he chooses to do it anyway. Is it naivete in the 
part of the hobbits? Do they not know what they're signing up to? Do they want to move forward? Do they wish that they did? Well, yeah and no, because they're actually moving forward, even though they know what is likely around the corner. For goodness sake, Fred has just been stabbed by a rotten blade that infiltrated his body and started clawing its way to his heart. And here he is in the most beautiful place that he could find himself in. And yet his heart is still moving towards Mordor. Courage despite fear is what drives the hobbits forward. And courage is just that. Courage is the ability to move forward despite your fear rather than because of it. Later Gandalf goes on to say, However it may prove, one must tread the path that need chooses. Here's another good nugget. One must tread the path that need chooses. Not that he chooses. Gandalf says this when he's deciding whether to go through Moria, through the mountains. For him, there's a moral obligation to persist because the need is great. His discomfort does not necessitate delay. And that's important to understand. It's not how you feel, but it's about what you need to do as you move forward. And they do push through. They do move forward. And eventually come across a Balrog, which is one of the most evil creatures of the deep that is engulfed in fire and darkness, almost at the same time, a contradiction in terms, but one that is standing between them and their pathway out of here. Gandalf urges the others out of obligation to go, to get out of there. And he stands behind. And this is what he says. You cannot pass. The orc stands still and a dead silence falls. I am a servant of the secret fire, a wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. The Belrog made no answer. The fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. <laughs> the fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. He's facing his demon. There is no answer. There's only darkness. The fire reduces, but the burn is still there. The darkness ensues. We see this all the time when it comes to battling trauma. On one hand, we feel the fire of emotion swallow us up. The intrusions, the dissociative stances where we just want to ignore and get rid of everything that's going on. We don't want to think about it. And then we have the darkness that fills us, that despondence, that sense of everything is down, like Schmeagel looking at the ground instead of looking up at what's actually going on. When we consider the Belrog, it can stand in as an item of terror that signifies both heat and cold alike, that swallows you whole, like a pit that's just unremitting. And anyone who's been through any sort of pain knows the effects of being so utterly down and then also experiencing that that energizing fire of anxiety, stress, trauma, just pulse through them. It's a tough gig. It really is a tough gig. It's tough to work with, but it's also an important thing to work with because you're starting to address the pain in so many different areas. We've all experienced it. I've experienced it. You've experienced it. And as we see here, Gandalf experiences it and he gets sucked in, gets thrown down into the deep and goes down in with the Balrog while the others escape. And they're on the other side. They go to Lothlorien, their elvish place. And Frodo sees some trees. This is what Tolkien writes. He felt a delight in wood and the touch of it 
Neither is Forrester nor is Carpenter. It was the delight of the living tree itself. This delight was not due to function, but it was due to the existence of the thing that he's putting his attention to. Just that mindful awareness. There's a practitioner called John Kabat-Zinn who defined mindfulness as paying attention on purpose and without judgment and with compassion. So as we consider loving a thing for its own sake, rather than the function that it has towards you, then we know we're coming closer to a sense of real mindful awareness and the ability to really be in the moment like a kid has when they stop in the middle of the street to point down to the ground and they see a ant that's making its way to one side of the path. It's really interesting that kids can do this, but we lose it as we grow older. Frodo has to be at the elvish place where every thing is taken as it seems, and time just doesn't travel the same way as other places in Middle-earth. He is able to experience that here and now movement, especially after Gandalf is lost to the abyss. And so when we're on the other side of stress and trauma, then we've got to ask ourselves, how do we come back to the moment? How do we acknowledge the here and now? How do we move this? And I mean, Tolkien wasn't a therapist. He wasn't speaking in terms of therapeutic interventions. He was just talking and writing and allowing himself to come up with ideas. And he smacked it really well because he had a great understanding of human nature. And if we're able to understand human nature, we can understand what works and what maybe doesn't work. We know that putting our boot on the neck of those who are hurting to stifle the noise will never work. In fact, it actually has the opposite effect. And it's a really interesting thing that humans have that response over and over again. And yet here we are reading a fantasy book and we see how Mordor is more pleasant than Rivendell, at least in terms of necessity and mission. The company go on and they meet another elf called Celeborn. Celeborn says, Do not despite the law that has come down from distant years. For oft it may chance that old wives keep in memory word of things that once were needed for the wise to know. This is said as a response to Boromir, who I haven't mentioned yet, but one of the humans who joined them on their journey. Boromir says, I've heard of this and that place, and but I've only heard of it in wives, old wives' tales. And they're trying to decide where to go. This is really important because we see it as well in cliches. Whenever we hear a cliche, we need to ask ourselves, why did it become a cliche in the first place? Why did it become an old wives' tale in the first place? Well, it's often because there is some grain of truth. And there is some sense that you need to pay attention to. So whenever I hear a cliche, my ears prick up and I say, okay, what, what's going on here? What's the history behind this? And how can we move forward with understanding this as it applies to my own life? Because if I don't apply it to my own life, then what have I really learned? What have our old wives' tales really taught us? Gimli started to leave. And again, I haven't mentioned Gimli, Legolas, I haven't mentioned them. They're part of the company. And this is what Gimli says when he's leaving Lothlorien. One of the most boring places that I've ever read about, but you kind of have to go with the territory as it comes with uh, Tolkien. Gimli says, I thank you for your words, true words, doubtless, yet all such comfort is cold. Memory is not what the heart desires. That is only a mirror. 
elves may see things otherwise. Indeed, I have heard that for them memory is more like to the waking world than to a dream. Not so for dwarves. Or humans, I might add. (laughs) Basically, Legolas is saying, hey, don't worry, you've got the memory of it. It's all good. You can always go back to remembering the good stuff. And at the same time, yeah, great. We can. We can do that. But it's like trying to remember someone who's already died. You only remember a image of them. It's not them. I mean, C.S. Lewis said this in his book, A Grief Observed, where he talks about how his wife died and his grief process. Even when he looks at images, images are not true representations of who that person was because that person stands far beyond the image and is so much more. We see this when we look at photos taken of ourselves and we see ourselves in a different light. Images but a reflection, just like memory is even worse than an image because memories are memories when recalled or modified. There's a neuroscientific term called memory recall is a memory modifier and neurons that wire together, fire together. And that's really important because when we think of something, our new experiences, different types of things that we go through, these influence our how we see things. And Gimli is on the ball, hey, you might be able to see it like that because you're an elf, but for me, I can't really experience it in the same way that you experience it. So, I have to really take advantage of the here and now when I'm in that moment and I'm going to mourn it when I'm gone and that's okay. Memory is but a mirror, as Gimli rightly observes. And just like with a mirror, the image can be distorted. But at the same time, what I want to say is that for people who have had experiences of trauma, this is different. When memories are laid down, these memories can be hypercharged in terms of how they were laid down in the first place. Adrenaline and cortisol works on the hippocampus, a part of the brain that modifies and and is in charge of memories. And it's quite closely linked with the amygdala, which is another part of the brain that manages emotional recall and emotional importance of the things that you feel as well as fear. And so, on the one hand, memory can be a mirror that stares back at you, but it can also be a distorted picture and a real experiencing of what's happened before. As many people with post-traumatic stress would say, re-experiencing symptoms are as devastating as the experiences themselves. So, how do you go from there? Well, the book kind of comes to an end after they leave Lothorian and decide where to go moving forward. Frodo decides onwards to Mordor and Sam accompanies him, whereas the rest of the company is split. And that's the important bit that I took out of it. This story is one of duty, it appears. Something that you don't want to do, but you choose to do it anyway because you know it's something that needs to happen for the greater good or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, just like Bilbo in The Hobbit, you stand to benefit because you're the one who's learning something about yourself along the way. You're the one who's able to repeat and move forward and start to understand your own psyche as it develops because memory and personality and temperament, they're all interrelated, but they're not unchangeable. Personality is something that we therapists work with all the time. And based on experiences, personalities can change quite significantly. In fact, it can change quite quickly 
with a concept called quantum change, which I'll get to when I'm reviewing another book that I really want to talk about in terms of quantum change. But basically, we want to look at the ability to make changes quite quickly, but also over time based on successive steps that move towards a determined and defined goal. So that's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. I loved this version of it, illustrated by Alan Lee, and it's the anniversary edition. It's got a lot of great illustrations inside it. So if you can tolerate it, have a read. The movies are great. I would say the movies are really good. Sometimes when you read a book, you're like, the book's way better than the movie. Uh, the books and the movies I enjoyed equally, and and parts of the book for me just weren't weren't good. Specifically, those um, those poems and songs that seem to take away from the story. But yeah, I, I loved the the character development of it and the way that you start to realize how applicable these sorts of themes are: courage, pain, trauma, the ability to move forward. All these sorts of things you just see in spades in the Fellowship of the Ring. It's a pretty massive book, but hey. Give it a go. If you liked this video, give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel and keep tuned for more videos where I'm going to explore more psychological themes as they relate to books that I love. Thanks for watching.